theyeshiva.net. I want to thank our security again outside. He doesn't hear, so uh, but I'll tell him to watch it. <laughs> so I'm going to learn with you today a teaching, a Torah, of a man known as the Degel Machina Ephraim. And I'm just going to give a little historical background about this person whose insights and teachings we will Bezer Hashem explore today. The Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tev, was the founder of what's known as Hasidism, the Hasidic movement of Hasidus, and he was born in the year Nachas, Tofnun Ches, which would be 1698 in the secular calendar. In the Jewish calendar, it's Hey Alofim, Tofnun Ches, or Nachas, which is uh, 1698, and uh, passed away on Shavuos in the year Tof Kuf Chof, which would be 1760. So he was born 1698 and lived for 62 years till Tof Kuf Chof, 1760 during which he revolutionized the landscape of Jewish thought and Jewish life in Eastern Europe. The Baal Shem Tev had two children. He had a son and a daughter. His son's name was Reb Tzvi. His daughter's name was Adl. Aleph Dalad Lamed, Adl. And a uh, beautiful name. Adl was married to a man named Rabbi Chiel Michal Ashkenazi, who was a son-in-law, obviously, of the Baal Shem Tov. They had a few children, and one of their children became known as the Degel Machene Ephraim. Another child was known as Rebaruch, Rebaruchal of Mezhebush, another child of Adl. These were the grandchildren of the Baal Shem Tov. The Degel Machene Ephraim is the name of his book. His name was Rabbi Yosef Chaim Ephraim. And his mother was the Baal Shem Tov's daughter. He was born in Mezhebush. Mezhebush is a little city in the Ukraine where the Baal Shem Tov lived, where he passed away, where he's buried till this very day. And he was born in the 1740s, approximately 1742, although it's not exactly clear when he was born. And later he became a rabbi and a teacher in a little Ukrainian town called Sedlikov or Sidlikov which is not far from his grandfather's town, Mezhebush. And that's where he taught, he wrote, he spoke. Later, closer to the end of his life, he moved back to the city where he grew up in and where his grandfather lived, Mezhebush. And that's where he passed away, Erev Lagba Eimer, Tovkov Samach, 1800. And if anybody goes to Mezhebush, Ukraine, where the Baal Shem Tov is buried, you'll see that in the Oihel, which today they reconstructed after the war, but in the oil, in the area, in the tent, with the, in the, what's it called? Uh, within the structure where the Baal Shem Tev is buried, there are another few tombstones, another few resting places, and one of them is his grandson, his daughter's son, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Ephraim of Sedlikov, who went back to Mezhebush and remained there till the end of his life. He wrote his teachings in a sefer called Degel, Machane Ephraim, which literally means the flag of the camp of Ephraim, which is an expression from Chumash about the flag 
that was associated. Every few tribes had their own flag. There were four flags, and every three tribes had their their degel. Every tribe actually had its own flag, but every three tribes rested together. So there's Degel Machen Ephraim. Since his name was Ephraim, so he named his book the flag of the Machen, of the camp of Ephraim. And it's a Sefer on Chumash. It was published 10 years after he passed away, I think by one of his sons or one of his students. The value of this book, besides him being an incredible uh, profound mind and teacher, the Baal Tov himself writes in a letter to his brother-in-law about the great prodigy that his grandson is when he was still a, a younger boy, is that the Baal Tov himself did not write his teachings. He just spoke. So everything that we have from the Baal Tov is from students. Students who heard them and transcribed them. We don't have anything from the original source. And one of the people who heard directly from the Baal Tov was, of course, his grandson, and he writes a lot of teachings that he heard either from his grandfather directly or from people who heard it from his grandfather. So in that sense, his, his, his book became a very, is a very valuable resource to understand a lot of the teachings and ideas of the Baal Shem Tov. So I'm going to share with you today one teaching of the Degel Machina Ephraim, this Jude of Yosef Chaim Ephraim of Sedlikov, the daughter of Adol, the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, on Parshas Vayichi. Why did I choose this teaching? It has a uh, an incredible, profound message, a very relevant message for all times, and I think especially also for our times. And I do thank a friend of mine, Rabbi Yankee Raskin, who emailed me this insight of his. And uh, when I researched it and I looked it up, it prompted me to uh, explore it further and share it with you today. So in Parshas Vayechi, there is the very well-known story of Yaakov crossing his hands before he passes away. The background of the story is that Yaakov has been reunited with his beloved son Yosef, and the last 17 years of his life, he's living in Egypt with Yosef and all of his other children. At last, the family experienced peaceful reconciliation and harmony, and for Yaakov, this is, as the Balaturim writes, it was the best 17 years of his life. Even though he was not home, he was in exile, and he was afraid to go there, and it was not easy for him. In Vayigash, God tells Yaakov, don't be afraid, because there was a fear, there was a distress to leave his ancestors' home, where his father lived, where his grandfather lived, the home that was promised to him for his children for eternity. That's all true. Nonetheless, because of the various circumstances, Egypt and the last 17 years of his life became the best years. In fact, 17 is the gematria of toiv, right? Toiv is the numerical value. Tess is 9, Vav is 6, Vez is 2. The Balaturim points out that these were 17 years, which were also toiv. Quite literally, 17 is toiv, and in reality, they were the best years. He lived in Egypt for those 17 years. Years earlier, he said that he would not really live well anymore. He would go down to his grave in grief and, and sadness and melancholy and despondency. But now at last, he came, so to speak, fully to life in the terms, in the sense of the joy and the unity that he experienced with the unity, with the reunification of the family that has been broken for so many years. He's now about to pass away. 
He asks his son to swear to him that he's going to bury him, not in Egypt, but take him back to the Holy Land, the land of Canaan, as it was called then, despite the difficulties and challenges which come up. When Yosef hears that his father falls ill, so what does he do? He decides to bring both of his own sons. He had two sons. Menashe was the oldest. Ephraim was the younger boy. These were boys who were born in Egypt after Yosef was liberated from prison and became the prime minister of the land. And Pare gave him the daughter of Poitifera to marry. Her name was Asnas. And Yosef marries Asnas. And they have two children before the hunger begins during the years of plenty. And the first one he names Menashe. And the second one Yosef names Ephraim. And now he really wants that the grandchildren should be blessed by their front, by their Zayda, by their grandfather, whom they did not have an opportunity to know all of their life. They did have the opportunity to know him for the last 17 years of his life. But when they grew up in Egypt in the earlier years, the seven years of plenty, at least for many years, they did not know Yaakov. They were just with Yosef and uh, their mother. They were the only Jews in the entire country, obviously, the only Hebrews. And now he brings Ephraim and Menashe to Yaakov to be blessed before his passing. The Torah dedicates a whole section to describe the interaction that occurs between the Zayda and the grandchildren, between the grandfather Yaakov and the grandchildren Menashe and Ephraim. And the Torah begins, it says, Ve'ene Yisrael, I'm going to quote, Ve'ene Yisrael kavdu mizaykan. The eyes of Yisrael, which is Yaakov, have become heavy, they have become... Um, challenging because of old age. That's the language of uh, Genesis chapter 48, verse 10. His eyes became heavy. Literally, kavdu means heavy, but means it's difficult to see because he's old. He doesn't have the ability to see, at least see clearly. So Yosef has to bring the children over, the grandchildren over. Yosef brings the grandchildren over to Yaakov, their Zaydi. He kisses them. And he embraces them. That's the first thing. As the grandchildren come over, Yaakov kisses them and he embraces them. Now here I'm going to point out something that is so interesting because it seems like such a small detail, but yet it captures... So much. And I told you many times when it's Torah, it says, Zaysa Torah Adam. Torah is compared to a person. Today we know with DNA that uh, when you extract the DNA from any part of the human body, because we have 40 trillion cells, even from the saliva of a person or from some minuscule piece of skin of a person, in that DNA you have the imprint and the emblem of the entire human organism. Because every single soul has a double copy of what we call today the genome, which is the blueprint, the manual, the DNA for the entire structure of the body. And therefore, any part of the body, you take the DNA. As long as you take DNA, you have everything. It's so tiny, but it has everything. Every prat, every detail, if it comes from the etzem, from the essence, as the Baal Shem Tov said, ha'etzem kshata Meaning, if you're dealing with etzem, if you're dealing with something at a core level, even if you have only the most minuscule, nuanced, tiniest part, you already have everything. And we see it today in DNA. can extract years even after a person is gone. They can extract DNA and they can prove innocence. They can prove guilt. 
They do it all the time. I don't know if you read about people who somebody just came out of prison after a few decades. He was accused of a crime that he has never done. Literally a few decades in prison. And the DNA has proved it conclusively that this person is innocent. And they extract DNA from the most interesting places. You don't need the brain and the heart for it. In Torah, if you get to the etzim of Torah, any detail, the smallest detail, captures the whole essence. The Ur HaChayim, Rabbi Nochayim ben Atar, who was, by the way, a contemporary of the Baal Shem Tov, he passed away in 1740, 20 years before the Baal Shem Tov. He was from Morocco and then came to Yerushalayim, the Ur HaChayim. He says, grammatically, we have a problem here. In Hebrew, you could say, Vayishak Oisam. He kissed them. Vayichabik Oisam. He embraced them. That makes sense. You could say, Vayishakim. He kissed them. Vayichab came. If you want to do it shorter, you could do it all, the plural in one word. Vayichab came. He embraced them. Or Vayichabik Oisam. Vayishak Lahem. Vayichabik Lahem is an awkward expression. Which is why when I translated it the first time I paused because I didn't translate it accurately. Nobody does. Vayishak Lahem means he kissed to them. Now, you don't say that, right? He didn't kiss to them. He kissed them. You don't say, he kissed to them. You could say, Vayoymer Lohem. He spoke to them. Right? You don't say, Vayoymer Oysam. You say, Vayoymer Lohem. Because he spoke to them. But you don't say, he kissed to them. He didn't send a kiss to them. He kissed them. He didn't embrace to them. You don't embrace to somebody. You embrace them. So really, you should have said, Vayichabek Oysam. Vayishak oisam. Or again, you can make it more concise and do vayishakim, vayichap came, which would be the same. But here the terminology is vayishak lohem. He kissed to them. Vayichabik lohem. And the Rechaim says something is awkward. Like why would the Chumash make this change? Now, frankly, most people read this. It's like, what's the difference? He kissed them and he embraced them. It makes all the difference. The tiniest variation in DNA codes can affect the entire organism very dramatically. In fact, you may know that the difference between us and chimpanzees <laughs> in terms of DNA is minuscule, right? 99.9% of our DNA is identical. So why don't I look like a chimpanzee? or any other human being walking on the face of the planet, and it's a tiny, tiny little alternate alternation, or few alternations, which makes all the difference. So details on that level are not only significant, they're essential, they're vital. And again, such a detail, such a small, what would seem like a grammatical, awkward way of writing it, an awkward way of writing it, is profoundly significant. But I'm going to leave that for a moment. So, ya- we'll get back to it, Be'elina. So, Yaakov's eyes are uh, are um, are dim. It's hard for him to see. Yosef brings over the children. He kisses them and he embraces them. And then Yisrael, Yaakov, turns to Yosef. It's also an interesting thing that the Torah keeps on alternating in this parasha between Yaakov and Yisrael. And you have to know when the Chumash chooses to call him Yaakov and when he chooses to call him Yisrael. Yisrael tells Yosef those beautiful words. I never anticipated to see your face again. In my wildest dreams, I didn't think that day will happen. And here I stand today, not only do I see your face, but I also see 
your children's faces. So Yosef now takes the children out of Yaakov's birkayim, out of his knees, because he was hugging them and kissing them, so they were actually very close to him. They were like between his feet, between his knees. So Yosef takes them out, and he bows down to his father, and he sets them up. Yosef He takes the two boys, and he places Ephraim, the younger boy, to the left of his father, which is to the right of Yosef, because Yosef is standing parallel to his father. So if I'm Yosef, I happen to have that name. He puts Ephraim on his right, which would be to the left of his father. And he takes Menashe, who's the older boy, and he places him on his own left, which would be to the right of his father, Yaakov. And again, he brings the children closer. And we all know what happens at this moment. Something unique happens. Yisrael takes his right hand, and he crosses it. He crosses his hand, meaning he takes his right hand. And you would expect that he would put his right hand by the child who's standing to his right, that's where the right hand belongs, and he would take his left hand and place it on the head of the child standing to his left, to Yosef's right, which would be Ephraim. That would be the natural setup of what Yosef expected, but that's not what happened. Sikel Esyadov. He crossed his hands. And the Torah says three words, Ki Menashe Habcher. Because Menashe is the oldest one. Menashe is the oldest one, which is, of course, a very strange way to write a sentence. He crossed his hands because Menashe was the oldest one. That's why he crossed his hands. So Rashi right away has to give us some context there. He has to fill in the gaps. And Rashi says he crossed his hands intentionally, premeditatively. It was not a mistake. Ki because he knew Menashe was the oldest. If he would have not known Menashe was the oldest, and he might have thought that the oldest is on the other side, so then he crossed his hands. But he knew Menashe was the oldest. So he crossed his hands intentionally to give the blessing of the right hand to Ephraim and the left hand to Menashe. That's how Rashi interprets these difficult words, Ki And he blesses Yosef. He blesses the children, that famous blessing that we still say every Metzai Shabbos, Hamalach. By the way, this morning in Shul by Davening, a Jew told me, we have here a Magid, Rebbe Nsiyan Snan, he told me that he was by the Skulene Rebbe, and he said, the one who passed away recently, and he said that once he was by his father, the old Skulene Rebbe, his name was Rebeleza Zusha, Portugal, Portugal. And he said that a, uh, a a fellow came to the school and a Rebbe, and he said that, you know, uh, he was listening to his wife putting the children to bed, and she was singing Hamalach Hagoyal with them. And she was saying with them, Hamalach Hagoyal Oisi Mikoyal, Ra Yivorech Esana'arim. Okay, which in translation would mean the angel who liberates me from everything, the evil one should bless the children, which of course the comma is in the wrong place. Hamalach Hagoyal Oisi Mikara Kama Yivarechesanar. The angel who emancipated me from all affliction, he shall bless the children. But she was saying with her children at the night, Hamalach Hagoyal Oisi Mikoil Ra Yivarechesanar. So he told his wife, "It's not how you say this pasuk." So she said, "I don't know who taught you." But I learned this from my mother, 
I learned this from my grandmother. This is how we do it. So he decided to go to the school and a Rebbe, the old school and a Rebbe. He passed away, I think, in 1983 or 84 or so. And he told them what happened. So he said, do you mind asking uh, your wife if she could come in to me? I would like to talk to her. He said, sure. So she was very thrilled, and she went into the Skelena Rebbe. And he asked her about Hamalach HaGoyal, and he asked her, how do you say it? And she said how she says it. And he asked her, what's the source? And she said, it's my, 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 my grandmother, my mother. And he tried introducing another way of saying, the boy says, listen, this is what I heard from my mother and grandmother, this is what I want to give my children. Okay, she comes out, and he thought that the Skolene Rebbe somehow educated her and enlightened her, and at night he would hear a different niggin. At night, So he runs back to the Skolene Rebbe, and he said, you know, why couldn't you uh, straighten it out? Why couldn't you straighten it out? So he says, I'll tell him, I spoke to your wife, and when I saw the innocence, the tmimas, with which she told me that this she heard from her mother, and this she heard from her grandmother, I felt that it would be the wrong thing to correct it. Because for her, this was just sacred tradition, and she felt the love and the depth and the tradition of her parent, mother and her grandmother. So therefore I thought to myself, that for her this has to work. And then I realized that for her it did work. Hamalach HaGoyal Oisi, the Gemara says that when a Jew comes home at night, so there's a, a Friday night, there's angels, and when he says Shalom Aleichem and welcomes the Shabbos, even an evil angel has to say Amen. So in her case it works like this, Hamalach HaGoyal Oisi Mikhail, the angel that liberates me from everything, Ra, even the bad angel, Yevorich Arim, is going to bless the children, that's how it has to work, it's fine, let it go, I would not tamper with her uh, tmimus, with her innocence and purity. This, he told me he heard this morning from, uh, this person in the morning told me he heard from the Skalanareb. This is the blessing that Yaakov gives his grandchildren. Vayar Yosef, Yosef sees what happened. He sees that his father placed his right hand on the younger boy. Vayera Be'enov. It doesn't sit well. And he lifts up Yaakov's hand to bring it back to what he felt was the rightful position. The right hand should be on the right, on the older boy, the left hand on the younger boy. And Yosef actually tells his father, Loichein Avi, this is wrong. Zahabchar, Menashe is the oldest, he gets the right hand. Vayimoyin Avi, his father refuses. His father says, Yadati Bni Yadati. I know, my son, I know. I know. You may think that I don't know, that I made a mistake, that I'm not thinking straight. I know everything. Yadati Bni, he says twice. In other words, I know, I know. And he explains himself, if Menashe is going to be a nation, he's going to be great. His younger brother will yet be greater. His descendants will fill up all the nations. And therefore I felt that he needs this type of blessing and he needs this type of blessings. And he gives them the famous blessing. In these children... All of Israel will be blessed forever. Whenever anybody wants to bless their son, they're going to say, may God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. Vayosem es Ephraim lefnei Menashe. That's how the story ends. And he placed Ephraim before Menashe. 
Then the story moves on. He tells Yosef, I'm going to die soon. One day you're going to come back to the land of your forefathers and you get the city of Shechem. And then he goes on to bless his children before his own passing. What is the significance of this story? How are we to understand the story? What is the meaning of it? What was the debate? What was Yaakov thinking? Why would he do this? So over the generations, dozens of interpretations have been given to the story. On many levels, on the level of Pshat, on the level of Remez, on the level of Drush, on the level of Said, almost all the Mepharshim grappled, grappled with this dilemma of what was going on. What was Yosef's perspective? What was Yaakov's perspective? What was the debate between them? Why did Yaakov stubbornly, so to speak, why did Yaakov with such strength affirm his position and would not want to bring his hands and would not want to place his hands in the natural direction, but wanted to cross the hands. What is behind the story? So today we're going to learn one dimension, one perspective. There are many others, but this is one possible perspective of the Degel Machine Ephraim, who sees it as a metaphor. Meaning, of course, he sees it as a literal story, but he also sees it as a metaphor, as a parable, as a parable for education, not just the education of children and grandchildren, but also of education of the self. He sees it also in historical terms, meaning he sees it really as a story that occurred then, but it's a story that's constantly occurring. And for this, he says we have to understand, it's a brief paragraph, I'm just developing it a little bit the way, that I, the way I understood it. For this, we must understand the names Menashe and Ephraim. What do these names represent? Why did Yosef choose these names? It's back in Parshas Miketz, after he became the viceroy of Egypt. I told you he married Asnas. They have two daughter, two sons before the hunger. The first son he names Menashe. Why Menashe? The word Menashe is a very interesting word. It means in Hebrew, you know what Menashe means? Forgetfulness. It's a very interesting name to give your child. Forgetfulness, right? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> you feel when you're raising your child, you have to forget everything. <laughs> But what does it mean? So he says, God made me forget all of my toil and the house of my father. The word nashani means forgetting. It actually is associated with another interesting word, gid hanasha. Gid hanasha is the sciatica, the sciatic nerve of Yaakov that was dislocated. When I forget something, the information is literally like dislocated, right? You say... Like, where is it? It was just here. You know, I had it. How, how does this, how does it go? How, like you're trying to remember a song or a story or an insight and somehow it just disappeared. It got removed from the fore of your consciousness. It didn't really disappear. It's somewhere there. It'll probably emerge when you don't need it anymore. You know how it is. But for now, it's gone. Nashani, Menasha. I have forgotten. Something has been forgotten. What about the second boy, Ephraim? He has a second boy, Ephraim. Ephraim comes from the word peri, piria, pruervu. God made me multiply in the land of my affliction, in the land of my poverty. So Menashe and Ephraim really have such different meanings, in many ways opposite meanings. Menashe is, he made me forget. There's a lot that I forget. I forgot my toil, I forgot the home of my father. Fascinating name to give your child. I forgot the home of my father. The second boy, something very different. God made me fruitful. The word peri, pre, right? 
or pruervu is to be fruitful, to multiply, to increase. Hifrani means God made me grow. He made me fruitful. He made me blossom. He made me develop. Be'eretz Anyi. Ephraim is an embodiment of Yosef's success story in Egypt. Says the Degel Machina Ephraim, what do these two things, what do these two modes, these two names represent in a person's life? And his answer to this is that these are metaphors for two different aspects of people's lives. And both exist, and Menashe usually exists first, and then comes Ephraim. And when it comes to the blessing, Yaakov does something very rare, very unique, and even shocks Yosef, and that is he crosses his hands. Now we have to understand, when he crossed his hands, that was not the logical thing to do. You cross your hands only if there's a special reason to do it. Usually, I have two people, I have two hands, let the right go on the right, and the left go on the left. Or actually, in this case, let the right go on the boy who's standing to my right, to Yosef's left. So my right goes on my right, and my left goes on my left. If you want to put your hands on two chairs, you want to hold on to two chairs, you're not going to cross your hands. Usually, you'll put your hand on one chair, the chair on the right is what gets the right hand, and the chair to the left, or the stender, the pulpit on the left, gets your left hand. Right? I'm not going to stand like this. I'm going to stand like this. Why? That's just the logical way of doing things. When you want to see things in patterns, logical patterns, right goes on right, left goes on life, left. When, when infants and toddlers are developing, right, you teach them right and left, and you try to create those associations which are important for mental development. You have to know patterns, and shapes, and dimensions, and angles, and sides. This is how we orient ourselves in this interesting world that we live in. Sikeles Yadav means that Yaakov does something not logical. That's why Yosef is astounded. He defies the norm. He's doing something very different. In fact, when you see it, your question is, why? Now, why does this make any less sense than this? For those who can't see. Why is crossing the hand any less logical than not crossing the hand? What's the difference? But we all know because our eyes, right? Our eyes are sensitive to things making sense. Those of you who are designers are extra sensitive. But even those of us who are colorblind and those of us who relationship to design is present company excluded is uh, not very sophisticated and developed. You just know you walk in, it doesn't look right, right? There's... What's asymmetrical? There's no symmetry. Your right hand belongs here. Your left hand belongs here. When you're doing this, something is happening. It tells us, it tells us the right and the left are now overlapping and crossing each other. There is some of something in the system that you're challenging. And that's what Yaakov does. And Yosef says, this is wrong. So what's happening in this crossing is it's happening on many levels. What is Yaakov trying to do? Says the Holy Dagel Machine Ephraim. There are moments in our own lives, and we're now going to take it away from these two individuals as children and apply it to our lives. There are moments in our life which we can define as the forgetful moments. And I'm not only talking about senior moments, you know, people say, I'm having a senior moment. 
<coughs> but we're talking about, this is not about how old a person is. This is those moments in life when I could say, I'm, I'm, I'm in a forgetful mode. What am I forgetting? I'm forgetting who I am. I'm forgetting who I could be. I'm forgetting my inner values. I'm forgetting my inner core. I'm going to quote him and then I'm going to explain. Says that doesn't only mean God made me forget. It also means something else. I forget God. Life causes me often to forget Elikim. I forget. This is part of the human condition. Sometimes a person's behavior is not in sync with their inner core, with their inner memories. They're not aligned. Their outer and inner lives are not aligned. Ephraim, who loshen para virava, hainu she'im kolza, he meleim mitzvahs v'chuli, meleim mitzvahs kirim. He's being brief. And the point he's making is, if I ask myself, if anybody asks themselves, how much of my life is honest? How often do I make mistakes in my life, in my behavior, my thoughts or my words, or most importantly, my actions? I may say something that is alien to my inner true values. It may come from forgetfulness. I may forget what I really care about. I may forget what I really believe in. I may be confused. I may not even be sure. I may be, I may forget what I'm ready to really fight for. I may forget what I'm ready to really sacrifice for. I may forget my deepest priorities. I may be overtaken by anger, by frustration, by sadness, by despair, by tremendous fear, by profound confusion, uncertainty. I may surrender to various habits or addictions or instincts or proclivities that take me over. They take over the better of me. It could be in a conversation. It can be in certain behaviors. It could be where my mind goes. And then I wake up and I say, you know, I was, I was in a place of, of forgetfulness. Sometimes forgetfulness can last for years. A person is just in a state where they're not fully present. They're not fully alert. They're not fully aligned. You know, sometimes a person wakes up in the morning and you're the master of your day. Meaning you have an inner compass and the entire day is following that compass. And sometimes I feel more fragmented and vulnerable. I'm almost responding to what comes my way. You relate to what I'm saying? You know those different days? It's not a gray that, it's not a day that grows from inner vision, from my core, knowing who I am and who I'm not. But it's almost a day in which I'm floating. Oh, there's an email. Let me respond to the email. Oh, there's food. Why not have a meal now, right? Et cetera, et cetera. There's hundreds and thousands of different examples. I'm, I'm living externally, not internally. That's all defined by what he calls shikha. Ein shikha, we say in davening. Ein shikha lifnei chiseich v'edecha. In the presence of your throne, there's no forgetfulness. It doesn't only mean God doesn't forget. That's also true. But the Balatanya says, In the presence of your throne, I don't forget. 
when you're in the presence of your own infinity, when you're in the presence of your own God, you don't forget. You don't forget who you are. So many things in life, if I would have that awareness, that famous expression, it's also from Tanya, they made it into a nice song, V'hinei Hashem, Nitzav Alav, you know that song, Amaloi Chalar, it's you don't hear your grandkids singing it. If you have that presence of mind, I know who I am. I know who I'm not. I know who I really am. People will say, I lost myself. I just lost myself. I have an addiction. I have a habit. I was hungry. I was angry. I had a headache. I just finished the flu. Whatever it is, it's winter. The weather, not in this tent, but uh, outdoors sometimes. I lost, what does it mean I lost myself? I lost myself means I forgot. In Yiddish, there's a question, I have fallen in the cup. I lost my, I guess, I forgot. They say that there was a Chelem story. There was a Jew who it always took him a lot of time to leave his house. You know, it's called in Yiddish, a kratzer, a procrastinator. He always didn't have his, he lost his shoes and his hat and his jacket and his keys. You know, some people, it takes two hours to get out of the house. There's always something misplaced. So he came to the rabbi of Chelem and he says, this is crazy, I can't get out of the house. So he says, the night before, when you're in bed, make a list where everything is. Your shoes and your pants and your keys and your hat and your jacket and your shirt. Just make a list. And then in the morning, you'll follow the list and you'll be out very swiftly. So he gets into bed at night, takes a paper, takes a pen. Starts making a list. His hat is his, shoes are his, clothes are his, keys are his, briefcase is here. And finally, number 10, I. I, where am I? He takes a look, I'm in bed. So he writes, I am in bed. Okay, wakes up the next morning. Negelvas gets dressed, takes out the list. Before, actually, he gets dressed. Amachaya, within five minutes, he has everything. Comes to number 10. I am in bed. She goes to the bed. The bed is empty. The man is gone. He looks under the bed, on top of the bed, under the mattress, on top of the mattress, under the pillow, on top of the pillow, moves the bed. You know, when you start moving the furniture, he's searching and searching. Usually it took him an hour to get out of the house. Now three hours later, he still can't find the man who disappeared, with whom he cannot go to work without. And he comes running to the Rav and says, that's why it's a classic Chelem story, Rebbe, what did you do? Every day at some point I got out of the house, today I'm still not finished with the list. And of course he had to explain to him that the eye, searching for the eye in bed, will not work because the eye who was in bed last night is now the eye who's looking for that bed. But it's true in life. It's true in life. Sometimes I'm an expert on locating everything besides me. And sometimes the less I can locate myself, the more I become an expert in locating everything else to compensate for my lack of inner control. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes to compensate for that lack of inner control, I have to control everything else. Sometimes you watch a control freak and you can get very annoyed, but you can also have compassion for how much they're out of control. Because they're so out of control, they have no choice but to control everything. Because they know 
that if they don't, their true inner chaos will emerge in such a powerful way and they will lose everything. And in their delusion, they think that if they can control everything externally, their life will be in order. This is not true about every control freak, but it's true about quite a few. And if you're suffering from this, so you know somebody's suffering, look in a little deeper and you'll see what's really going on. It's, the, it's actually the opposite. People who have uh, who are composed internally, they don't have to control other people. They don't have to control every situation because there is an inner wholesomeness. When there is not, I have to mamash, mamash control. So I'm searching for all these things. I know where everything is, but sometimes I don't know where I am. And that's the core of Nashani. When he says, Nashani Elikim, I forget my God. What does it mean, I forget my God? It doesn't only mean I forget that God is in heaven watching me. It means I forget the God inside of me. I forget my own divinity. I forget my own infinity. I forget my own holiness. I forget my power. I forget my confidence, my resourcefulness. I forget it. A person who's living in perpetual trauma and loneliness is living in a perpetual state of forgetfulness. It's just another word for it. And here the word menasha, hanosha, is extremely vital and accurate. I'm removed. I'm detached. Who am I detached from? I'm detached from my beauty. I'm detached from my connections. I'm detached from myself. And that's often what life's experiences can do for certain people in their own perception. I have to dislocate my heart from life. I have to dislocate my brain. I have to literally detach. Some people can't feel their body. It's too much. Some people don't allow themselves to feel their emotions. Too much. I cannot feel my emotions. I have to bypass my emotions. I'll do everything right. Some of these people, their lives are more controlled than anybody else. Because they're smart and they learn survival skills. I'm very robotic. I'm meticulous. I'm methodical. I travel a lot. So I know about packing. I'm a big expert in packing. The only problem is time. I'm not good at packing early. I'm usually finished packing in the airport. Uh, if I could do it in the taxi on the way to the airport, it's pretty good. If I get a few minutes before that, it's even better. Uh, when I got married, my wife introduced me to a friend of hers, and she told me, learn from this person how to pack. I said, how do they pack? What's the brilliance here? What do they have a PhD in packing? She said, they do what's called practice packing. I said, what's practice packing? And here I learned about a whole new art of life that I never knew about. Practice packing means that two weeks before your trip, you do a practice packing. You take out all the suitcases and carry on, and you pack up everything mamish. Mamish, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And I know female packing is very different than male packing. I know that we can wear the same jacket for three weeks. It's fine. <laughs> That's why my packing is not very complicated. And you put in everything. The toothbrush goes in and practice packing because it also occupies space. The toothbrush, the nail clipper, everything goes in and two weeks before. And then you assess it. Is there enough place? Will the zipper close comfortably? Or will the zipper experience anxiety and stress like my zipper? Because I'm just trying to force it and control it. 
And as I always say, if you don't treat your zipper nicely, it will not treat you nicely. Or as Yogi Berra said, if you want somebody to come to your funeral, go to theirs. <laughs> so you zipper it up. You see that you can carry it. You take a scale. You make sure it's not overweight. You also make sure it's not too little weight because that's also a problem, you know, anorexia. Because what happens is the things in the suitcase will start moving around, shuffling around, and the dresses get creased. Everything has to be mamish. This is a big avoid. After you ascertain that it's good, good. Now you unpack because you don't live two weeks out of a suitcase. That's also Nezbalabatish. And then two days before the trip, you do the real packing for points. What happens if the suitcases are protruding? You have to reevaluate the entire trip, maybe a day less, maybe another suitcase. You have to figure it all out. This is called practice packing. I told my wife, Esti, I love them, but this is not for me. I will do it my way. Because this will cause me much more anxiety than the anxiety of packing fast before I trip, before my trip. Freudian slip. But there's what you call a happy medium. Sometimes when I am not relaxed inside, everything has to be perfect. When you could be relaxed inside, it's nice to have things perfect, but they don't have to be. And it's not the great crisis of life. The Medrash says, fascinating Medrash. And I tell it to young couples all the time in Bereshis. God saw everything. He saw the world and it was means super good. Perfect. Excessively good. Says the Medrash. Toiv zemalach hachayim. Toiv ma'oid zemalach Hamavas. Good, the angel of life. Super good, the angel of death. Can anybody explain this madrash to me? Very good. OCD. It's true. When you want something to be good, that's an angel of life. You want things to be good, to be nice, to be neat. When you need something to be perfect, this is the angel of death. First of all, it will kill every ambition. It will kill every shavabrachas. It will destroy every bar mitzvah. And it will make every wedding miserable. It will make every Shabbos experience difficult. It will also cause you to not follow most of your dreams. You will nip everything in the bud because I'm waiting for perfection. How many people fail to actualize themselves? To do what they're supposed to do in this world because they're waiting for toiv ma'oid. It can't be good. It has to be super, super, super good. But perfection is the greatest enemy of progress. Perfection is the greatest enemy of the good. Perfection kills everything before it blossoms. It kills the chick in the egg. It kills the embryo pre-birth. The spiritual conceptual embryo. Why? Toiv ma'id. It also drains and depletes me from my energy. Creates expectations that are unfeasible and creates frustrations that are irrelevant. It all comes from a fact, from the fact there's something here that is so chaotic that I need to somehow get it in control. But if you can 
have an inner wholesomeness inside. So even if your items on the chalem list are not all in place, you'll be fine. Now, this is not advocating chaos at all. You should pack early and get everything in the suitcase. And if you need to do practice packing, pajalista, labriyut. Just don't try to impose it on me. But you can do practice packing. And if you need to set up your Shabbos table on Monday morning, wonderful. And if you have to have your Seder table set up a day before Purim, excellent, wonderful. And if you already have in the freezer the food for Shabbos after Pesach, because you may come back and there's not enough time Friday morning, you know, this year Friday is right. You already know that, I know. Only you and I are the only two who know that. I like those who know it. I know it for my reasons. You know it for your reasons. So you know already that Pesach ends Thursday. That Friday is chaos. So therefore, in your freezer, there is food for Shabbos after Pesach. You see, I know my customers. <laughs> so, gesundheit, order is vital. Especially when you're raising children, a house needs to be orderly. But I'm talking about something else. Toiv is good. Toiv ma'oid. Toiv ma'oid is a malach It creates such a pressure, like a boot camp. If it's not perfect, it's miserable. But that's not life. It's not life. When are you going to start living? <laughs> we organize our lives in order to live. We don't live in order to organize our lives. Think about that. Of course, of course. This is the general therapy for specifics. Everybody can go to their own experts. I just do the general stuff. There's endless variations, of course. Now, as it was a father once told his son beautifully, he says, I will not be upset if you miss because you aimed tall. I will be far more upset if you never missed because you aimed low. You know, the basketball hoop, you can put very low and you never miss. You always get it in. He says, that will upset me far more if you're constantly missing because you aimed high. If my expectation is perfection, I will never aim high because I can't fail. I will forever aim low. So it actually is one of the greatest death sentences for human creativity. Human creativity only happens through failure through trial and error. It's also true in life. People who do nothing are never criticized. If I'm a couch potato, for 90 years I will never be criticized. Anybody who does anything will get criticized. So criticism is a sign that you're alive, that you're actually doing something, you're creating something. You may have to learn from mistakes. We all learn from mistakes. I may have to say, I'm sorry, I may grow from it. Don't start... Uh, worshipping failure, that's another malacham of us. Don't worship failure, learn from failure, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The first time we drive the bike, right, and we get rid of those training wheels, we fall. And the first time we walk, we fall. And the mother or father will not allow their children to ever fall, will also never allow their children to ever walk, will never allow their children to ever drive a bike, will never allow the birds to ever go out of the nest. But for this, you have to have an inner core that allows you to be able to look at failure and say, okay, and now let me get up and try again. 
I may have shared with you once, it's a beautiful story. There was a man named Sir Edmund Hillary. He came from New Zealand. He was a mountain climber and an explorer. He's also an entrepreneur. And he decided he wants to get to the top of Mount Everest. Nobody has ever reached the top of Mount Everest. People either died or came back down. Because I think it's around 32,000 miles or so. I don't remember exactly. But it's, huh? I'm sorry, 32,000 feet. You can Google it. It's extremely hard to get up there. In 1952, Sir Edmund Hillary, after practicing and preparing for months with the gear and the training, made it almost to the top, but not quite. And he came back down, and it was a failure. It was not Taiv Ma'ait. But in Britain, they honored him for the attempt and for getting there almost. And they honored him at a banquet, and then behind him, the backdrop was a portrait of Mount Everest. So Sir Edmund Hillary received the trophy of the award they gave him, and he thanked them, and then he started to speak to the mountain in back of him. Instead of speaking to the people, he spoke to the mountain. And he turns to the mountain, and he says, Mount Everest, you have beaten me. But only this time around. Next time around, I will beat you. And I'll tell you why. You're tall, you're mighty, you're powerful, you're splendid, you're big and scary, but you stopped growing. I did not. Next year, 1953, he made it to the top of Mount Everest. That's the person who has the core to understand life is not about aiming low and never failing. It's about aiming high but not stopping to grow. And that makes complete difference in everything. But when I'm in a state of nashani, when I forget that divinity in me, when, I, when, I, when I'm too scared to be vulnerable, because the only way a person can be vulnerable is if they have the tools for recovery. But if I know that I'm going to be punched out, and that's my demise, I'll never get into a fray. Emotionally, it's exactly the same way. When I have a strong core, I can fail. I can get a punch because I can come back. But if I feel that I can't come back because I'm so insecure, because I'm so timid, because my core is nothing, then I will make sure to avoid anything that may challenge anything inside of me because it may equal death, including vulnerability, including failure, including learning from my lessons, including learning lessons from my mistakes. The glorious idea of Judaism is the idea of, of tshuva, of, of recreation, of reinventing yourself, and reinventing yourself every single moment. The Swasemis writes that there was a Jew known as the Yid HaKadosh. The Yid HaKadosh, he says, why do they call him the Yid HaKadosh? Every Jew is a Yid HaKadosh. And he says that for him, every day he felt like he converted that day to Judaism. So he became a Jew that day. You called him Ayid because he just became a Jew that day. He was a Jew already for 50 years, but every day it was like a completely new experience. As Yitzhak Sassamas writes about the Yid HaKadosh. It was like today he became a Jew. Yesterday he was also a Jew, but relative to today, yesterday he was completely in a different place. It was mamish like a geiris, mamish like a, a, a conversion. Powerful, powerful idea. Everything is new. But often... In life, I'm in a state of, of forgetfulness. I forget who I am. I allow the lower angels in me to take over. 
The Malach HaGoyal Oisi Mikoil, I allow the Ra, the Malach Ra, the lower angels, my base instincts, or for some people, my, their addictions or insecurities or traumas or fears, or the one word we have for it which probably encompasses all of this is the Yetzirah. And I forget. I forget. And before I know it, I'm like wrapped around in this bubble. And then I'm just binging to compensate for the void. And once I'm in that slippery slope, you know, you're going down the hill, you just go further and further and further, and then you say, wow, I forgot. Ephraim represents a very different side of people. That side of you that's fruitful. The side that grows, the side that reproduces. The side that is pariyavirav, it's about growth and development. And the Dagmar says, every person has both. The Gemara says at the end of Chagiga, which he quotes, meaning, even those who look in the mirror and they see themselves as sinners, they're filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Even people who are constantly forgetting themselves, even people who are constantly alienated from themselves, they still have within them Ephraim, Malaya mitzvahs. There's, there's so much good. There's so much positivity. There's so much beauty, both in your behavior and certainly in your core, even if so often you're alienated from your core. What do most people do in life? Do they put Menashe before Ephraim? Or do they put Ephraim before Menashe? Okay? So, I'm going I'm, to... Okay, I should have brought my experiment here, but I didn't. But you'll, you'll get it. Okay? <clears throat> it's not the best, but shine. What do you see on this? Huh? Well, generally. Right, okay. You see all the, as you're saying, all these black lines. Now imagine, I put you don't have it. If there was one little black dot here in the middle, right? <laughs> and I would pick up the paper to any audience and say, what do you see? What is everybody going to answer? The black dot. Very seldom besides you. Well, you've been here for a while. <laughs> Even though, even though 99.9% of what I'm holding is white. But that's what our eyes see. When we look at Menashe and Ephraim, what do we see? We see first, says the Dagomach and Ephraim, we see first Menashe. Think about your own children. There's the Menashe in your child, there's the Ephraim in your child. What do we see? What do we see? What do we see first? What attracts my attention? What attracts my power? Right? It's night, you're stressed. That child who's gives you, in a good day, gives you a difficult time, is giving you an extra special difficult time in honor of the fast day. <laughs> For those who are fasting, right? You know that moment? And you come up like, what do I see? We are magnificent isolators. We just know how to isolate. I see the black dot because it stands out, because it's unique. And here we come to a fascinating insight that Yaakov was teaching Yosef and teaching all of the Jewish people forever. When you follow patterns, you will always do that. Menashe will come first and Ephraim will always come second. You'll always recognize first your guilt, your negativity, your problems, your toxicity. 
and with your children even more, and with your husband <laughs> even more, and with your shviger as well, and with yourself as well, and with your grandchildren a little easier, but still, especially if you grew up in a pretty critical home. But Yaakov says, you got to change the pattern. you got to surprise yourself. And you have to surprise your children. The right hand always goes first on Ephraim. Cross those hands. Shake up your brain. You cross those brain neurons. And you get your right hand on Ephraim. You don't deny Menashe. And your left hand, your weaker hand, on Menashe. You always see first and foremost... People's strengths, your own strength, their beauty, their divinity, their potential, all of the good that is happening in their lives. Even if your brain is screaming, no, 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 come on, let's be honest. There's so much to criticize. And you want to go right back. And you know, it's almost like, it's almost like the instinct is your hands are going right back. And Yaakov says, no. You have to proactively, proactively do what your brain is going to call manipulation. But it's not manipulation. It's actually highlighting the truth. And you know why it's the truth, he says? Ki menasha Because menasha is always only the first stage. And if you get stuck there, you're getting stuck. Ephraim is always the second stage. Of course we forget of course, we're often alienated, but that's the first stage. That's the prayer in my life. That's often what I go through. But ultimately, if you dig deeper, if you hold my hand, if you know how to embrace yourself and me, you'll get to Ephraim. Because that's the pnimius. That's the inside. So don't let the chitzonius, the externalities, Take over your life just because it's glaring. It's true. That which is more external stands out. The black dot stands out. And it eclipses the entire white piece of paper. And it's important to know there's a black dot. This is not about denial, repression, making believe it doesn't exist. The question is what gets the emphasis? Who gets your power? What aspect gets your attention? Where is your mental space being dedicated primarily to? When you look at yourself, what are you feeling? Are you feeling I equals what? Failure or I equals divine infinity? Anybody wants to answer that question? What's your instinctive experience? We all know what our instinctive experience is. Or at least many of us. That's why Yaakov says we got to work on the brain. I need you to get that right brain, that intuitive Creative brain, I need you to get that right hand on your Ephraim. I need you to accentuate. I need you to give preference. I need you to give dominance. I need you to give hashivas to your goodness, to your beauty, to your wholesomeness. Yes, I also want you to appreciate all the other factors in your life first thing in this process is you have to kiss Ephraim and Menashe and you have to embrace them. But this is not a regular kiss and it's not a regular embrace. You remember what I started the class off with, the DNA? Vayishak lohem, vayichabik lohem. So the Erechayim says something fascinating. Very interesting. 
He says, Yaakov couldn't see. Before you hug somebody, you look at them. Before you kiss somebody, you look at them. And then you know to kiss in the appropriate place. You know to hug in the appropriate place. I don't start hugging people, for example, around their leg. You ever try to do that? You know what's going to happen. Yeah, You pick up their leg, they'll fall. You hug people around their neck. There's a certain appropriate way of kissing somebody based on the relationship, the time, the space, the person, etc. So the Rechaim says, but Yaakov couldn't see. So Yaakov felt, and he started to hug them, but it's in the wrong place. He started to kiss them, but it's in the wrong place. How does the Torah express that? So the Rechaim says, the Torah says, it's not Vayishak Oisam, or Vayichabik Oisam, or Vayichabkem. It was Vayishak Lem. He kissed to them. And you, you can almost see what he's saying. He kissed to them. He embraced to them. I mean, he was trying to kiss them. He was trying to get them. Ma, 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 ma. It's like the person who can't see, and I'm like trying everything. I'm kissing here, I'm kissing there. Like, Tati, leave me alone, Zadie. But I'm, I'm not going to stop. That's on a literal level. So Degel Machnefraim says, what is the Rechaim really saying? He's saying something on a very, he's saying something very deep. Sometimes I'm kissing somebody and people say, no, it's not, you don't do it this way. You don't do it this way. It's a wrong kiss. I'm embracing. No, wrong, wrong. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong position. What does this mean? It means people will tell you, this is not a person you're supposed to kiss. This is not a person you're supposed to embrace. This is a person you're supposed to say, get out of my house. Get out of my life. But Yaakov says, no way, no way. You make sure not to stop and terminate that loving relationship, even if there are certain things that you can't look at. And that's the beginning of the verse. Yaakov's eyes are so heavy because he's old and he can't see anymore. And therefore, when he kisses them, he's not kissing them in the right place. Says the from something extraordinary. Sometimes there's things going on that you can't look at. It's too painful. Every voice in my body says, don't kiss this child. Don't embrace this child. And when you do, there'll be somebody saying, wrong, 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 wrong kiss, wrong hung, wrong place, wrong time, not productive. Yaakov can't see it because he's Yaakov. And he says the word is Mizoikin, Kavdu Mizoikin. He can't see it because he's old. What does that mean spiritually speaking? He says sometimes people do the wrong thing, but they know it's wrong. When people are addicted, it becomes entrenched. It's a habit. It's like you get good at it. You get old. It's just like, why am I doing it? Because I did it yesterday. Why did it yesterday? I did it a week ago. It's like almost habit. Yaakov can deal with looking at somebody who makes a mistake and then balances back. But what if the mistake just becomes my default mode? It becomes so difficult. Now you're even more tempted to go away. I can't see it. Yaakov can't see it. Because Yaakov is a man who's godly. It's painful for him to see somebody, to see a child, to see a grandchild, to see even that part of yourself that is in a state of forgetfulness. And the kiss and the hug will be criticized. But vayishak lohem, vayichabek lohem. And he'll tell Yosef, I didn't see, I, I didn't think I'll ever see you. Life is full of surprises. I thought I'm going to die without you. 
and me ever united again. Now look, I'm here with my child. Don't create the future based on what you're experiencing right now. Allow for newness. Allow for creativity. Allow for change. The worst things that people do to themselves is they get into a rut. They're now submerged in the quagmire of quicksand, and that's it. When I am in my own rut, I think everybody else is in a rut. When I'm always new and fresh, I could see fresh opportunity. Newness. Don't get old. Rabbi Nachman said, how do you know you're old? When you stop telling stories. Young children tell stories and listen to stories. Don't stop telling stories, but I want to add new stories. New stories. Children want to get new books. Right every time you go to the store, I need a new book. You have already 300 books in your library. No, we need a new book. (laughs) We need a new story. But when we get old, we don't need new stories anymore. We're just doing the same books over and over. You see the difference? Children want new stories. You know you're old when you stop telling and listening to new stories. If this is the story of yesterday, it must be the story of today. But that's never the case. Yaakov tells Yosef, you think I ever thought I'll see you? I had one plan, but life surprised me. Here I see you, and I see your children. And then, when he has to bless the two paradigms, Yaakov says, always Ephraim with the right hand. Always accentuate, see, celebrate. Focus, love, kiss, embrace. That goodness that exists in every single Jew, in every single person, and first and foremost, in yourself. Even as you acknowledge and you understand that we sometimes have so many moments of forgetfulness, and for some of us, the Menashe may naturally trump the Ephraim. He says, never allow that part to trump the other, to triumph over the other part. Yosef says, Loichen avi. It's not how you do it. Vayimoein. This is the third time Vayimoein is in Sefer Bereshus. You remember my Vayimoein Shiurim? So now you have the third one. We never did that one. The third time there's Vayimoein. The first Vayimoein was Yaakov. He refused to be comforted on Yosef's death. The second Vayimoyen was Yosef who refused to fall prey to Potiphar's wife. The third Vayimoyen is the first time Yaakov and Yosef together. The first one, Yaakov is separated from Yosef. The second one, Yosef is separated from Yaakov. The third one in Vayechi, they're together. Yaakov refuses to listen to Yosef who wants the right hand on Menashe, the left hand on Ephraim. The beginning of Vayeshev, it says, Vayovi Yosef is the bosom royal aviyam. Yosef brought gossip to his father about the brothers. What does this mean? Yosef had nothing better to do. Come home every night and say, Tati, do I have a story about Yehuda? Let me tell you what these guys are doing Thursday night. You think they're going back to yeshiva? Let me tell you what these brothers are up to. Eva Menachai Rashi says, All right, what, what, what went on over there? So the Svasema says something very profound. He says, Yosef didn't bring slander to Yaakov actively. It was all silently. And the reason was, Yosef's spiritual level was much higher than all of his brothers. That's why they didn't understand him. That's why he could withstand temptations and tests that they couldn't withstand. When you compared Yosef to his brothers, automatically, 
you looked at the brothers and you saw the black dot in the white page. The contrast is what slandered the brothers. The contrast. When you compared Yosef to the brothers, it's like they were... What emerged was a, a certain negativity. Why? Because of the the glow, the glow of Yosef. A candle casts a beautiful light. Besides, if you light a candle in the middle of the day, try. Take the candle and light it in the middle of the day, right under the sun. And what is everybody going to look at the candle? What are they going to say? Eh, this is called light. <laughs> That's light. Shraga betiara mayahani, the Gemara says. A candle in broad daylight is ineffective. Sometimes, you know, an orange is a wonderful fruit. Wouldn't you agree? It's interesting, it's colorful, it's delicious, it's tarty. It's great. Now place an orange near Mount Everest. (laughs) The orange is great, but how do you compare it to Mount Everest? Vis-a-vis an orange, an orange is great. Relative to Mount Everest, it's something different. Something completely different. The presence of Yosef brought out the negativity of his brothers. Not because they were negative, but because they didn't have his soul. Svasema says, what changed this? You know what changed it? Yosef had to go to Egypt. He spent 22 years in Egypt and he learned that his brothers were not as bad as he thought. He suddenly learned that his brothers were tzaddikim. Till he went to Mitzrayim, he couldn't appreciate it. When he went to Egypt, he said, ah, my brothers are pretty good. Before that, it was between him and his brothers, him, Yaakov, and his brothers. He went to Egypt. He became entrenched in Egyptian culture. Ah, he could say that his brothers are good. Yosef came from that very powerful place of perfection. I go back to the previous week's class. Remember Yosef versus Yehuda. Yosef is the beautiful child. The beautiful child doesn't tolerate imperfection. And that's why Yosef's descendants, when they fail, they often fail very miserably. Because once I get a scratch on my face, it's like I can't show up for three weeks. You know those people? Three weeks, three months. Once there's a little stain, that's it. I retreat from the world. Because the only way I know how to carry myself is with my perfection. Yehuda is the exact opposite. He gets dirty, he gets filthy, stands up and says, Here I am. Satka, me many. I'm just a human guy. I just make mistakes all the time. David, chatasi. Shaul, it's not my fault. I didn't know. I didn't think. They pressured me. He couldn't be a melech. Yosef tells Yaakov, Ephraim is on the left, Menashe is on the right. Vayimoen Yaakov. Yaakov says, let's go back to the Vayimoen. You were in the pit. You were a slave. I refuse to give up on you. I refuse to call you dead. You know what that did? It allowed you to refuse the wife of Potiphar. It was the Vayimoen of Yaakov that empowered the Vayimoen of Yosef. When you have a father who believes in you, it allows you to believe in yourself. 
When you have a father or mother who believes in you. When you have a you that believes in you. When you have a God who believes in you. There's a teenager by me and he was telling me he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in this. So I told him, listen. Your faith in God will leave for another time. What I want to tell you is much more important than if you believe in God or not is you to know that God believes in you. He said, that I like. That I like. I said, well, more or less, that's what belief in God means. <laughs> he said, oh, you're smart. I said, you're good. If you believe what I just said, that's more or less what belief in God means. <laughs> it means you're not a mistake. It means you're not a random mutation. It means you're not an error on the blimp of an infinite universe. You want to give it a different name, give it a different name. The word belief brings up trauma in you, that's fine. Give it a different name. Semantics are almost irrelevant in the world of faith. Usually they're distractions. Vayimoin comes from the word imun. What's imun? Trust. Confidence. Emuna comes from which word? Imun. Trust. Confidence. The American dollar. In God we trust. Or like the store in Borough Park. In God we trust. Everyone else pays cash. If God wants to buy, no problem. Everybody else cash. Imun is practice. Excellent. Emunim. An exercise. Imunim is exercise. Training, which is practice. So, huh? Amen is exactly, Amen. What's Amen? Authentic. Imun. MS. Authentic. Nemon. What's Nemon? Nemon is Abagloip Demensh. He says something, it's faithful. He's dedicated. Nemanut is dedication. All the same. How does Yaakov refuse to accept that Yosef is lost? Because there is a deep trust in who your child is. There's a deep confidence. There's a ne'emanut. There's a dedication. Even if you tell me I'm kissing him in the wrong place. That's fine. I don't mind surprising my brain. I don't mind. I don't mind crossing my hands. I know everybody says it doesn't look good. It's not how you do it. It's not. It's a It's not symmetrical. It doesn't fit in. It's fine. I'm not going to lose him so that you should say that I'm symmetrical. That's more important. Sikilis yadov. Sometimes you have to cross your hand. No, 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 you don't do it this way. Nobody does it this way. Of course, we do it this way. Yaakov did it this way. When Yosef says, Loichenavi, Loichenavi, Yosef is Yifei Teravi, Yifei Mara, Yaakov Vayimoyin. You remember the Vayimoyin? That Vayimoyin allowed you to rise from the abyss. Your brother said that you're the black sheep in the family. Your brother said that you have no hope. Your brother said that you're the kid, you know, who uh, doesn't fit in. I refuse to believe that you're spiritually dead. And therefore you refuse to believe that you're spiritually dead. And therefore you fled the house of Potiphar's wife. Now at the end of my life, remember this last lesson, Yosef. Yodati bni yodati. I know everything you know. I'm not naive. I know what pain is. I even know that my eyes have a hard time seeing a lot of the things I'm seeing. 
but I refuse to close those eyes for eternity and reject the people whom I believe in. I will keep those eyes focused even if my kiss and my hug are not in the most perfect situation and posture that they want. I would like my these children sometimes to be in another posture so that the kiss should be able to be direct and pointed. But sometimes their posture is not there yet. So what do I do? Do I run away from the house? No. I bend down. I cross my hands. I change my posture to be able to accommodate their posture so that one day they'll be able to live up to their true posture, which is Yaakov Avinu's posture. Did you hear that, women? You got that? Vayishak lohem, vayichabek lohem. Yaakov also told them something even deeper. Menashe is important, Menashe is great. Aval achiv hakotan yigdal mimenu. Literally, it means his younger brother will become greater than him. But in Hebrew, yigdal mimenu also means his younger brother will become greater through him. And this is yet one deeper step. It's not just Menashe is your nebach and Ephraim is your success and you have to know what to emphasize. It's much deeper than that. It's your Menashe that allows your Ephraim to really become great. It's not just tolerate your Nebuch but don't turn it into the story. No. It's really one story. It's not two stories. Ephraim becomes great mi menu, yigdal mi menu. From Menashe, that's where he becomes great. Our goodness and our beauty and our confidence and our godliness and our holiness becomes great from our challenges, from our mistakes, even from our toxicity, even from our loneliness, even from our brokenness. Each one of them, every one of those experiences becomes a springboard for new self-discovery, for deeper awareness, for deeper growth, and most importantly, for the gift of transformation. Ephraim's greatness will never be great in a vacuum. Ephraim's greatness always comes from Menashe, from Nashani. Menashe is the first, but the reason God allows us to go through forgetfulness is only because after the B'chor, as we come to Ephraim, as we mature, as we grow, the darkness that becomes a force for light constitutes the greatest light. Shleim HaMelech says in Ecclesiastes, Yisra in Ha'or, the advantage of light is over darkness is like the advantage of wisdom over folly. Asks the Zayar, what's the, you need Shleimah Melech to tell you, by the way, light is greater than darkness, like wisdom is greater than folly. The meaning is, Yisunar min He's not saying light is greater than darkness. The greatest light is the light that comes from the darkness. The wisdom that comes from the stupidity. There's no wisdom like the wisdom that comes from stupidity. Now, when I'm stupid, I don't know that. That's true. But when I'm wise, there's no wisdom like the wisdom that comes from folly. 
There's no light that lay light that comes from darkness. Because whenever you take a negative force and you metamorphosize it into a catalyst for a positive force, it unleashes a nuclear energy that the light on its own would never have. When darkness is harnessed into a, a tool for light, it creates a caliber of light that light on its own could never experience. Whenever you take negative energy and you channel it into positive energy, it creates a caliber of positive energy that is absolutely unprecedented because it's the transformation that gives it a whole different flavor. Positive energy is great, it's positive. But when negative energy becomes positive energy, it's a positivity that unleashes all of the negativity and transforms it, it gives it a whole different flavor. It's like spices in a salad or in a soup, or in a cholent, right? Nobody serves pepper or, or salt for, for lunch or for dinner. But if you put in, and if you put in too much salt and pepper into the salad, what does it taste like? Chaloshes, right? Like last Shabbos when you went to somebody's house, and you had to be polite, but you know that you couldn't take a bite. You went home and you ate Shabbos meal, 11 o'clock. You have to know how much. But if you put in the right amount of salt and pepper and other spices, even though on their own they're bitter, they're tardy, they're, they're unedible. But in the right way, in the right flavor, in the right amount, quantity, if you're a great connoisseur and a great chef, as so many people in this room, then you give it some spice and flavor that it never would have had on its own. Achiv hakoton, yigdal, mi menu. From, from him. And the Degel Machin Ephraim finishes, and there are such beautiful words, so I'm going to finish with his words. He says, The Eine Yisrael is not only talking about a father, and not only talking about Yaakov, it's talking about throughout all of history. Eine Yisrael represents the paradigm of a Jewish leader, of a Jewish teacher. And the eyes always represent, we call Eine Ha'eda, the eyes of the community represents the vision of the community. Leadership is defined as eyes in Tanakh. Why? Because eyes give you vision, perspective. They say, here, go there, don't go there. He says, Ve'eni Yisrael, the eyes of every Jewish leader throughout all the generations, looks with its eyes at every single Jew in the generation. And sometimes they see things. And it's so hard to see. Kavdu Mizoiken. It's entrenched. Nidma lehem keheter. He says he can't even rebuke them because they don't even know that it's something wrong. Or sometimes a person is so full and you can't even rebuke them because they don't get it. And if you rebuke them, you just alienate them even more. He says, there's nothing, the guy thinks he's a tzaddik, he doesn't even understand. He can't look. You would think that he would distance himself. He brings them closer, even though it's painful for him. He will stay very close with them because he knows. Every Jew is a tzaddik. He will hug them, he will kiss them, even though people are saying they are not in the proper posture. He will not only hug them, but kiss them. There's a difference. A hugging is more physical. I embrace you. He says a kiss, a real kiss, mouth to mouth, is his dapkus rucha berucha. It's like mouth to mouth. Your energy goes into the other person's energy. So he says he'll kiss them and he'll hug them, both of them. Even before Menashe has been completely transformed, even if he has not transformed at all, even if he can't speak to him about transformation, because in his mind, this is habit, this is the only thing I know, this is perfect, this is wonderful. And he says, Ki derech Because the way of a real tzaddik, an authentic Jew is, 
to always see good in every Jew uh, because he's a member of the holy nation. And to always bring them close with both hands, with the hug and the kiss, with love and affection. Let every wise man hear my words and increase his own understanding of it. With this lesson from this story, which is applicable, timeless. It's, it's an application is timeless. Especially, he writes, early, uh, late 1700s in our generations, because the rule of Torah is that it's wholesome and that means its lessons and its stories stand for eternity. Have a wonderful week. Next week, Be'ezer Hashem, there's a class. Everybody is invited. Tuesday morning, 9.30. I just want to acknowledge there's people here who drove in from Lakewood, from Borough Park, from Williamsburg, from Monroe. So uh, I thank everybody who comes, even those who come from two, three minutes away or ten minutes away. But I just want to make special notice of people who came from very far today and every week. A lot of atzlacha. And you're all very welcome. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank Rabbi. you. The gematria. The gematria. Yeah. The right brain is responsible for the left side of the body, and the left is responsible for the right. In other words, Yaakov was following the real neurological process. Sikilis <laughs> Yadav. The right connects to the left, and the left connects to the right. So very often, naturally, we like the symmetry, right with right, left with left. But the real system, the real neurological system, the way Hashem created it is, the right is connected to the left, the left is connected to the right. Sike Yadav, right? Degel Machen Ephraim. Parshas Vayechid is two pieces near each other, and I combine them both. The word with Yosef is the Svasamas. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.